I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. Welcome to another episode of the Executives Exchange, where we highlight exceptional leaders making a significant impact on the business landscape. In this episode, we explore the remarkable journey of Christy Ross, a visionary entrepreneur, co-founder and former co-CEO of Tasty Trade Inc., a trailblazing financial media company headquartered in Chicago. Get ready to dive into Christy Ross's incredible journey and discover her upcoming ventures that are set to revolutionize the coffee industry. Christy, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I know. We should have had you earlier. I think just COVID, you know, you were busy. You had a lot going on, which we will get to in a minute, but um, I'm just really glad that you're here now. We have a lot to talk about. Um, So anyone who knows you knows you've had an absolutely fascinating career and you're just getting started. So I'd like to start at the beginning a little bit so people can get to know you. Tell us about your childhood and anything that was important leading up to your move to Chicago. Wow. So that's going really far back. Um, But I had an absolutely wonderful childhood growing up in Wisconsin. Um, Packers fan. Very rare though. I've I've spent a majority of my life here in Chicago. So I am a Bears fan too. So this rarity of of dual, uh, you know, competing uh, football teams is, uh, you don't see that very often. Just five hours a year where you're conflicted. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I, (laughs) you know, I always, uh, I always go back to the Packer side. Um, So, (laughs) but I uh, had a wonderfully active childhood too. I played all sports, volleyball, basketball track, um, you know, softball. Uh, My parents were divorced when I was like 10 years old. And my mom, um, actually, uh, she had cancer when I was 16 and died while I was still in high school. And um, I bring that up just because it's such a, uh, it it had such an impact on me, I think, in how I sort of approached life in general, um, that it's worth mentioning. I went on to go to college at St. Norbert, which is actually where my dad went. Um, A lot of kids from Milwaukee and Chicago went there. And that really is sort of my my, um, exposure uh, to the big city. I took a couple road trips to Chicago and I'm like, this is where I need to be. (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing. I do want to talk about your mom a little bit because um, there is so many, there are so many things that you learn through that experience and it probably prepared you really well for the leadership and the entrepreneurship and the independence, you know, the upside of all the tragedy. I'd love to just hear a little bit more about that. Like what, what was the possible gift that came out of it? What did, what did it give you that you carry with you still? Yeah. That's a, and that's a, that's a really good question because, um, to, to frame it as a, gift, right, is really interesting. Um, because I think what I, I think what I pulled out of that was, um, how very important, uh, people and, and connections are and time spent. It's, it's that, um, time spent and uniting people that, and the connections that I think really, truly, um, stuck with me. And so I appreciate those, those deeper connections, those, the time you spend with people. I feel like time is one of the most valuable assets 
that we all have. And part of that, I think, stems from the short time I was able to be with my mom, who I was absolutely, you know, incredibly close with. Uh, But yeah, time is time is our most valuable asset. I know my mom died when I was 11. And so kind of uh, similar. Uh And it is such a tender age. And um, I remember reading an article by Madonna, because her mom also died when she was, I think, 12 or something like that. And she talked about when she became a mother, just how healing that was for her. Like she was able to finally like live and give the things that she missed. I don't know if that resonates with you at all. Absolutely. Positively. Well, and first of all, I think about 11 and 12, and that is such a a fragile age. So my my heart goes out to you. Oh, 16 is pretty fragile. (laughs) What's that? 16 is pretty fragile. It, it is. Both. Both are, right? Both are, right. are sort of, you know, pivotal times in your life um, or foundational times in your life. But I, uh, uh, yeah, I, I absolutely, that resonates with me um, is as a mother things, especially my mom died when she was 44. And so when I turned 44, it was yes. this massive um, yes. realization of how fragile and how short life is and how very important um, that, that, you know, it, it reinforced the time and connections and people like all of those things matter. I know. I had the same thing. My mom was 47 and um, I, Mother's Day was on the date of my mom's death, May 9th, on the year I was 47. And I had this like weight lifted off of me. I said, I'm no longer an orphan. This is now all unwritten. This is the next chapter. Like I now get to own this. This is no longer, like it doesn't define me anymore, this loss. It was really, and you would think I would have gotten over it, you know, by 47. And I didn't, but that really was a watershed moment. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Okay. So what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, what did I want to be? I wanted to actually be a math teacher. I loved math, um, uh, loved numbers. And I think, you know, you sort of gravitate towards things that you're good at. Uh, so that was one thing. And then I also, as I, as I grew older and sort of in my teen years, I would debate topics with my dad. So it was sort of like, oh, maybe I should be an attorney. <laughs> so, it was one of those things. so he'd introduce me as his you know, little attorney. Yeah. Um, so not surprising that you pivoted to a career in finance, something that had a lot of like numbers associated with it. So were there any specific mentors or role models that guided you into the world of finance? Okay. So that's, um, I would say that's sort of a loaded question for me because at this stage in my life, uh, I appreciate um, who played like such a big role in my life as mentors, but also like sort of these little snippets of advice yeah. and thoughts and comments uh, along the way, right? Like they all shape who you are and who you become. Uh, so, but you asked about a, a, the finance career and I would, I would start all the way back to um, the first, uh, I'll say, you know, boss in my career, um, the, the first partner uh, who I reported to in, in public accounting. And he, um, th- one of the things he was really good at is sort of sales. And I remember being in the opening class, if you will, of, of, of newbies coming in out of college. And he was standing there talking about uh, you 
everything we do, you need to pay attention around you. Your friends can be your clients, your clients can be your friends. And it was all about sort of paying attention, right? Just, you might be at a party, you might be in the line at the grocery store, you might be at, you know, on a plane, whatever. That resonated with me throughout my career. I, I, that, that paying attention, that, that sort of opportunity is all around you. You know, you formulate these life mottos later, right? You, you, you string it all together. Um, but I think also what I learned through other people was not only do you have to like opportunities all around you, you have to pay attention and you have to do something with it. You have to take action. Mm -hmm. And so it was sort of one of those things that, that I'll say, um, formulated over time, but there were those, you know, aha moments that, um, drove, you know, drove those home hundred percent. I wish I learned that earlier. I feel like I learned too late this idea that opportunity is anywhere. And I underestimated people at some points along my career. I just made judgments and assessments based on just stupid information, you know, and then not realizing, oh no, that, you know, that could have been really helpful. Or so I have learned and I tell everyone, like, do not make assessments or judgments of what someone may possibly you know, add to your life. Like everyone can add something to your life and it's opportunity is everywhere. And it took me a little too long, I think, to realize that. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And it's, and, um, I think I just got lucky that he sort of planted that seed early on in, in my life. So we talk to people who have so many different paths to CEO. And I think the CFO one is the most interesting because it prepares you in just you know, unique ways than if you come up through, you know, marketing or a founder without this background, all sorts of ways. So I'd love to hear your reflection on how all your experience as a CFO made you the strong, you know, founder and CEO that you are. So it's interesting because I I became a CFO at the age of 25. Oh my gosh. And so one of our clients um, in public accounting, one of our clients uh, was looking for a CFO and I literally raised my hand, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and I look back now and I'm like, I was 25. What did I know when I was 25? Um, no, that's what's so good. Maybe if you were older, you wouldn't have raised your hand, right? <laughs> you just didn't know. So like, sure, I can do it. <laughs> right, right. So I just kind of, you know, put myself out there. I got, I got the interview, but what I did, um, Margaret, is I ran out and bought this desktop CFO book. And at the same time, I bought the, um, I'll call it the desktop CEO book, just to, so I was like, I just need to know the terms. I need to be prepared. And this was all before Amazon. Okay. So oh, right. this before you could like literally just go, go yeah. order it. <laughs> but, um, but I got the job. And I think that's one of those things where you, you need to take risks, right? You need to put yourself out there. The thing is, is it's not like I had confidence that I thought I'd be the best CFO I could ever be, but it was, I had confidence I could figure it out. I had confidence I could jump in. I would prepare, I would do everything possible to try to make that a success or try to get to the next level. And so, um, but it, but in terms of being a CFO, the, the one thing I truly believe and is a hundred percent true is, is financials um, tell a story, right? Numbers tell a story. Mm-hmm. And so you see the whole picture of the company. And I loved that. I loved being able to sort of um, 
take the 10,000, you know, whatever, 30,000 foot view and, uh, and yet still dive in and, and be able to, um, you know, make, make changes or have an impact or whatever it may be. But the, I think the thing about um, being around traders all those early years too, was about making decisions and being able to being able to make a quick decision uh, is really valuable. And I think that um, understanding sort of the throughput of those decisions, seeing it in the financials, seeing it carry through in the numbers and ultimately in the story of the company, uh, is what really interested me. And it, it excited me to be part of strategy. And that's where I think I focused most on then from there forward was like, oh, I really want to be part of what um, what we can build and how, how the strategy works and how combining companies works or launching a new product works. All of those things comes back to, and you see the impact. You can touch it, feel it, measure it in the numbers. Yeah. I mean, talk about an industry that has experienced tremendous transformation in all ways, like technology, culturally, you know, diversity. I mean, so many things, trading. Um, what's the thing that excites you the most about um, either the change or the opportunity that you see in that industry? Um, so I would say the thing that excites me the most. Well, I would I would say when I look at trading or I look at um, media, what what excites me the most is I feel like we will have. Um, I feel I feel like we will have a lot more actionable media in the coming years. I feel like we will have um, things that that you hear news and you can do something about it right now. That's what I want to see happen over the next, you know, whatever, 10 years, yeah. 20 years, that everything becomes actionable. Yeah. That's really great. Um, you've just had so many experiences that have given you these opportunities, again, to just have these experiences as a leader. I'd like to talk just a little bit about the M&A work um, that happened and the integration. Um, if you can just share with us a little bit about that, what happened there and any lesson learned or anything looking back on you would do differently, someone who's maybe going through the process, something that they can learn from your experience in it. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of them, Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever um, one you're most interested in sure. sharing. Well, so let's see. So I've been through over 40 mergers, acquisitions, capital raises, startups in my career. Um, I, I remember my first deal that I was involved in. Um, again, Amazon uh, would have been really helpful back then, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I went to the bookstore again. To or Google. Get, what's that? Yeah, yeah. Or Google, or Google. anything. Good. Yes, exactly. But I went to the bookstore again and I bought this bit, literally, I think it was this thick, like a, like a few inches thick of this M&A book of sort of like a how-to. And I remember this checklist in the book. Um, and I remember uh, that it was the very last thing on this list of considerations. And I gave it no weight back then, none whatsoever. 
and it was about culture. Mm-hmm. So when doing M&A, one of the things that you should be considering are the culture of both companies. And today, after all of my experience, I would actually put that as number one. You need to yeah. consider that when you bring two companies together. Um, and the, probably the most prominent example was back in 2007, when uh, Thinkorswim, when we merged with a financial education company, we were dramatically different in our approaches, in our style, in our brand, everything. Uh, it was the right strategic move, um, you know, financially and strategic with uh, bringing our products together, but culturally, not a fit. Um, mm-hmm. So within two years, TD Ameritrade bought us. Um, and so it was a short period we were dealing with sort of this, this mismatch in, in cultures. And uh, it was a, a tremendous learning experience. But, but I'll go back even, even further. I have a, I have a, um, I'll share a, a quick personal lesson that came out of one of, the, um, one of my early deals. And this is back when I was like at, at the Chicago Stock Exchange um, associated with that. We, we, That's our building. That's oh, where our office is. You're at, oh, really? So you're at you're at 440? 425 South Financial 425. Place. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I know they keep um, changing the numbers because there was like the SIBO building and then our building and one of them has a Van Buren or LaSalle address and one financial place. People can never find us, but we're right there. Right. Right. <laughs> That's so true. Um, but yeah, it, it was right when we were there. We were actually in the uh, Jesse Livermore. You know where Jesse Livermore's used to be? It used to be a... a a bar in the, what they called, or they termed the traders building. Yes. So we were in the traders building on the corner yep. there, um, yep. right next to the Chicago stock exchange. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. But so, so quick, quick lesson is, is we, we had bought another company and I was working to solve this integration problem. And what I was coming up just didn't match. And I, you know, head down trying to figure this out. I finally, go talk to the guy um, from the other company. And he answers like with such confidence, um, you know, his answer, I just assumed was right then. And yet I struggled in like literally figuring this out. Finally, I went back to him. I showed him what I was coming up with and he goes, oh yeah, you're right. And I was so frustrated that I wasted so much time and I was right all along. so this lesson was like, don't ever assume someone knows more than you um, just because they say it with confidence. And yet you can turn that around and say, if you say something with confidence, somebody's going to believe you and you're the expert. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, it was just, uh-huh. it was a massive moment, like aha moment in my career um, to really not always just take everything at face value and ask questions, always ask questions and, and don't assume somebody knows more than you. So that was really a valuable, valuable personal and professional uh, lesson that I learned. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the idea for Tasty Trade and Dough. What was missing in the industry? What was the visionary spark? Let us know how that started. Absolutely. So I have to give credit to Tom Sosnoff, who I like to refer to as a brilliant visionary of Tasty Trade. Um, he's He was a wonderful partner. Um, I actually, we were together for almost 20 years. When you look at uh, combining uh, Thinkorswim 
as well as, you know, Tasty Trade and all the different companies that we created. But he came up with the name initially. So for, for um, our mission, like it, it fit perfectly because it was making finance fun and actionable. So fun with the Tasty, actionable with the trade. Uh, but we actually lived it together too. I, um, finance in general was very boring. And uh, a lot of times if you're watching the news, you did not know what to do in your own portfolio. So you might want to do something, but you didn't know mm-hmm. exactly what to do. So this is part of what we wanted to do is fill this white space. There was um, there was more... Uh, more information and education that people needed. We needed to create this bridge, if you will, from the news into what you could actually do in your own portfolio. Uh, And we wanted to make it fun. I mean, we wanted to actually come in and um, disrupt an industry that not, uh, not many people paid attention to. So financial media, this is this is one funny thing. When we were on the trading floor, you people would have on CNBC and CNBC serves a purpose. So don't get me wrong, but they'd have CNBC, but they would not have any of the sound on. They would just yeah. have it playing. And so just that the, tickers. Could see, the traders <laughs> could see the numbers. Yeah, they could right. see the ticker tape, um, but they didn't have the sound on. And so it was it was sort of telling to us that, hey, wait, we want to make sure that what we're, you know, what we're saying, what we're presenting is entertaining enough to turn the sound on, but also actionable from what you're going to hear, like informative and educational. And it really, uh, our mission stood true through and through, throughout that, you know, full decade. Um, But how we delivered that, I think, really changed over the course of over the course of time. Uh, The the interesting thing about it is, is the interesting thing about it is that we knew nothing about media. We took a risk and we sort of figured it out. We were lucky enough to have entered into the content era at that time. but again, it was it was something that I think uh, you have to timing matters when you're creating when you're creating a company or putting a product out there, and timing wise, uh, yeah. entering the content era was really the perfect time for us to launch a you know an online media company. I know. I mean, it's that's the thing. There are these factors that come together, right? There's you already talked about. There's opportunity that presents itself. You need to be prepared mm-hmm. to take advantage of the opportunity. That's the preparedness. And then you have to take risk, yeah, right? Exactly. And there are plenty of people who are really prepared and willing to take risk, but sometimes the opportunities just don't come along or they do, you know, and just having this perfect combination of factors and you going for it um, is just really remarkable. <clears throat> so we covered a lot of things in your multifaceted career. You talked about... Um, all the finance work and m and I do want to talk a little bit about fundraising and entrepreneurship because I know that you do mentor a lot of entrepreneurs. You give back a lot in that way. What is the biggest, well, two things. What's changed the most in fundraising since you did it? And then what is the biggest lesson that you impart in the entrepreneurs that you're mentoring? 
Yeah. So, um, well, I'd like to say that there are more minorities in women getting funding, but that hasn't moved at the pace or direction I, I would like to see it, or, or I think a, a number of people would like to see it. Um, but what has changed the most since I started um, is it has to be that the, the table stakes of being an amazing plugged in storyteller and having a presence on every platform that those are table stakes today. And if you, if you have a presence and you are a great storyteller, um, there's a, you, you're, you have a higher probability that you're going to get funding. So I feel like early on, it was much more about the unit economics and it was much more about just the numbers. Um, and it still is, but if, if funders believe in the founders, right, they expect right. that the founders will figure out how to make money. But early on, if your unit economics did not work, you weren't going to get that funding. Now I feel like if you if, if you're a better storyteller, whether you got, <laughs> you know, it's just a lot of hot air, or whether it is, um, or just the fact that you're a good storyteller, you could still get amazing funding. So that's the difference. That's what I think has changed. But what that has also highlighted. Um, I, I still, I personally believe you still need to have that unit economics in some way, shape or form. But I think that what, what rings true for me on that is going back to, you need to know your narrative. You need to know your numbers. You need to know your industry numbers. And I think that aspect is probably one of the biggest takeaways. One of the biggest lessons, um, that, that, um, that I sort of, uh, I'll say acquired or, or ingrained in everything I do. I mean, how many slides have you just seen in pitches and there is no story? It's just numbers after numbers. And you have to remember that the people you're pitching don't necessarily know your industry. Mm -hmm. So you have to like get them to believe, you know, it's one thing when you're so immersed in it and you know this industry inside and out. And so you can see through the numbers, oh yeah, here's the opportunity here. But right. when you're pitching something that's outside of that, you've yeah. got to tell the story. I saw this great presentation that that, well, there are many contributing factors, but that is also one of the contributing factors to the underinvestment in women entrepreneurs because the kinds of companies that they tend to be starting don't always resonate with the men who are investing. And so, you know, if it is a health and wellness company, you know, beauty, all of these things, they don't, they don't get it you know, they don't necessarily get the story right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Very true. You always you star have to know your audience, right? You have to know yeah. who your audience is and what they care about and, um, you know, how they will perceive what you're saying. So if you don't bridge them into why that is important, it's a, it's a missed opportunity. Yeah. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Shore Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shore microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shore lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. 
So you've since decided to leave the company. Tell us how you knew it was time. What was the moment? So I, I have left. I First of all, I have to say I love Tasty Trade and what we built over 10 years, building seven companies within our company. So fun. Um, love the people. Uh, and I also love the strategy of the combination of Tasty Trade and IG Group. Absolutely, positively still support that today. So I didn't leave because I didn't, you know, love yeah. everything about that. I think it's more about self-awareness and what makes me tick and what makes me happy. So um, very quick story, you know, as we did the deal, uh, we closed in um, July or ju end of June in 2021. Uh, and I stayed on for a year and there's four, co four, four of us co-founders. And out of the four of us, really my position changed the most. I was flying to London every three weeks and I was, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, working with all the, you know, on the boards and because there's a number of different companies, I was covering all of the U S I, I, it was, it was one of those things where I was no longer really creating or, yeah. um, or, or having as much fun. Again, I loved the people, loved everything else about it, but I didn't really I could do the corporate job. I can, I can do it. I, oh, yeah. I, I'm not, um, it wasn't, but it wasn't bringing me joy every day. I get and it. so being self-aware of what makes me happy was really, I'll say the impetus of me leaving. So, um, I, I, uh, negotiated my way out and I was, you know, am again, super supportive of them today still, but, uh, it was it was just the right time for me personally, and I also yeah. looked at the company as a whole. And it's you know it's going to transition a lot over time, and I think it's it was the it was better to leave earlier rather than rather than later. But when what I um, I what I also did is sort of this personal reflection. Um, I have three wonderful girls, a wonderful husband, uh, and I wanted to spend the second half of my life uh, together with them. Right. Right. I totally get it. Um, had you ever taken time off before? <laughs> ever? Honestly, I don't know how to sit still, Margaret. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, um, I tried to take time off at one point, and I ended up writing a children's book uh, years <laughs> ago. I, I called it Lots of Knots. Um, inspired by a busy mom, you know, being a busy mom, wanting to teach your kids all about philanthropy, you know, and that little hands can make a difference and all that kind of stuff. And it, it's like, I, I tried and I was like, I need to be doing something. I need to be having an impact. I need to be, you know, doing whatever. And my kids would always say when they needed me to do something or wanted me to do something, if I was like really busy, I'm, I, I would always try to explain to them, I'm not sitting here eating bonbons. I don't even know what a bonbon is, but it yeah. was it was yeah, a yeah. comment I used to say um, to them. And it was sort of funny to them over time. They're like, I know you're not eating bonbons, mom, but can you, you know, sitting there with your feet up, but can you help me with X, Y, and Z? And, and of course I always would do everything to try to help them and, and be there for them. Um, but it was, uh, but it's, it's not, the bigger point there is about, I don't sit still very well. I need to be busy. I need to be having an impact. I need to be creating, making a difference in some way, shape or form. Um, but isn't, you know, isn't that what, what part of what life is all about and what we're here for? 
right? Yeah, I know for sure. Um, and that's part of why you've been as successful as you have, right? Like the kind of people who would be eating bonbons are probably not going to be uh, creating the number of ventures and the value that you've created in your industry. I have nothing against bonbons, Margaret. No. I don't even know what they are. I don't know what they are either. I kind of want to try one. What is it? Is it like a, like a truffle? I think so. Is it I like a cake so. pop? I don't know. <laughs> I'll find out. I'm going to send you a box of bonbons once I find out what they are. <laughs> Maybe that should be your next venture, like oh, boss bonbons. <laughs> yes. I'm going to create coffee bonbons. Right. So this brings us to your next venture. We're recording on November 3rd. Big press release yesterday. Tell us all about it. Yes, absolutely. Um, boy, uh, when, I, when, I, when I get asked why coffee, um, I look back on all that I've done or accomplished um, and while people and connections helped me a lot, right? The consistent thing that fueled my late nights and early mornings is coffee. It's literally been my lifeblood. It uh, feeds my soul. My husband, who is and has been in, in healthcare and pharmaceutical for years, he um, he's a relationship person. He comes from the sales side and he is a great storyteller and, 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 and a great relationship builder. And so for him, um, coffee and connections is, I'll say the foundation of a lot of, uh, his success as well. So it was, it was interesting because he's healthcare and pharmaceuticals. I'm financial services trading, you know, and, 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 and our kids, we have three wonderful girls. Uh, none of them wanted to go into either one of those fields. And so when Craig and I you know, sat down, we're like, you know what? Um, creating something together rather than uh, mm -hmm. uh, jumping on planes and heading separate directions, creating something together that we both love and that our kids can truly connect to. Um, we wanted this to be something that we came together, uh, not only as a couple, but as, as a family, in a sense, uh, to, to connect on and continue to connect on for years to come. So we have a mission to unite the world through coffee. And there are four arms of the company. Uh, one is the, the I'll, I'll say the roastery and cafe, um, but the way I view that is it's really us diving into learning about coffee, being part of the industry, um, not just helicoptering in and saying, this is where, you know, you need to innovate and make changes. It, we want to be part of this community and, um, and, and learn and do. And I'm very much that way. Anyway, we roll up our sleeves, you dive in, you do it yourself and you sit, you start to see where some of those white spaces are, right? Some mm -hmm. of those areas for improvement, some of the things that need attention. Um, so so that is one component. Another uh, arm is our marketplace, and it what it's called the U3 Coffee Exchange, and so it's our online marketplace where we are creating a space for other roasters to highlight their best coffee, uh, as well as a lot of you know do-it-yourself at-home brewing equipment. But the the bigger piece of this is there's about 2,200 roasters in the U.S. 
And a majority of them are incredible craft roasters uh, making roasting unbelievable coffee. Mm -hmm. But yet they are head down experts in their field and have not picked their head up to amplify their message, to talk about why it's so great, what they're doing and the impact they're having. And um, so part of our mission is literally not only to unite all these wonderful roasters in one place, but also to amplify their story. So the third leg of our company is a media company. So um, this is super fun for me because it is about, in part, it's about um, amplifying not only those roaster story, but we're, we're, we want to take the farmers and amplify their stories as well as the, um, as well as the coffee entrepreneur. Uh, so yes, roasters, cafe owners, and everybody along the value chain. And then thirdly, the, uh, the end customer, the voice of the customer, which I, really believe in from everything we've built at Tasty Trade and prior is you need to have and represent um, the voice of the customer with everything you do. But it, but it's that's part of where uh, the name U3 Coffee came from because it's uniting the farmer, the coffee entrepreneur and the end customer. Oh, and it's great. about, um, you know, uniting the world through coffee. And a big part of that, the media side of it's really uh, I will say that's where it all sort of started, um, is talking about bringing education of, uh, do it yourself at home, but also about, uh, coffee in general. It, it absolutely floored me to hear that there are f- almost 40 people, 40 hands, I should say, there are almost 40 hands that touch the coffee beans before it hits your mug. Um, and, I was like, what, in what industry does that happen? Right. So it was really fascinating. There are some fascinating numbers that we will be sharing over time. It's about telling the stories, um, of the coffee industry, but, but the people, uh, more than anything. And lastly, we have our fourth arm, which is our, um, the U3 coffee bank, which is more of our charitable, charitable arm and, uh, about giving back, and about empowerment and uplifting others in this industry and giving them a chance to be um, uh, really giving them opportunities that I look back at people helping me over the course of my career. And I want to be able to give back and, and uh, provide those same kind of opportunities for other people. That's really great. Um, some of my early work when I was uh, a young market researcher was on fair trade certified, and um, it has transformed communities. Mm-hmm. The, the, to be able to be these viable um, coffee growers and have a global marketplace um, in a lot of these areas around the world, and the families, and there were a lot of women owned. Um, it was like women entrepreneurs and just giving them this um, access to a market and exposure that they normally could never have, right? They may have this most um, organic, shade-grown, fair trade, most delicious coffee beans, but if they can't get them to the market, you know, yeah. exactly. then they can't really capitalize on it. Exactly. And it was it was fascinating to me to travel to to origin, to to literally go to the country 
Um, we went to Costa Rica to source our, our flagship beans and we seeing, feeling, touching it, like sort of helped connect all the dots and actually Mm -hmm. talking to the farmers, seeing the co-ops, um, seeing it in action really made a difference for us. It, it solidified that what we're doing, um, is, is, uh, is really important. And we, we feel that we can have an impact. Well, you know, I'll, I'll talk to you in a year, in 10 years, we'll see where we're at, but we, we have um, big aspirations to hopefully uh, help a lot of people. So I love coffee so much. I've loved it my whole life and I just can't do the caffeine anymore. So I drink decaf every day and man, is it not your father's decaf. It's so good now, which is why I drink it. Like decaf, I don't know, even 10 years ago, was just not that good. And it's mm-hmm. so good now. I mean, we do a lot of artisanal, you know, beans and um, it's really, really good. So I'm thrilled oh. because I love coffee. I love the flavor profile, everything about it. I just can't. I well, I will definitely now. send you some. We have our decaf coming in next okay. month. So I will be sure to send you some. But I, I totally do. agree with you. I totally agree with you. And the health benefits... Um, in coffee in general, the level of antioxidants and, and going, going through the decaf process, um, does not strip that away. So you still get, um, all the wonderful health benefits from it. I think that's why it tastes so much better now too, because they've completely changed the decaffeination process. It used to be kind of a chemical process and that wasn't so great all around. And now that they've changed it, it's delicious. So I encourage everyone. You don't have to give up coffee. Just try decaf. Yes. So true. Um, So I would love to talk a little bit more about philanthropy. So I think when we think about concepts like corporate social responsibility, community impact, I think very often, especially in the executives club, big companies come to mind, right? Like the banks, the consulting firms, they have these whole like CSR um, enterprises and I think sometimes it can be challenging for the small company or mid-sized company to think, well, how can I do that? Because they're doing such big things. Like you think about Discover opening a call center in Chatham. It's like, well, I can't do that. I can't create 400 jobs, but you know, what can I do? And so I'd love to hear you just talk a little bit more to that small and mid-sized business owner, how they can be having this kind of impact in all sorts of ways. How do you talk them through how to think through that? Yeah, no, I think that is a great question. And I think it's, um, I think it's an important one because whether you're talking about smaller companies making a big difference, it's, it's that collectiveness, right. Of, of making those small changes or whether it's your packaging, whether it's, um, related to giving back in the community or being, um, actively involved. It's, um, making socially uh, d- responsible sourcing uh, decisions. All of those things matter. If you have no small businesses doing it, think about what that impact could be. But you have to flip that around and say, if each and every one of us does something, does at least one thing, that collectively you know, raises you know, raises the whole time. And I think that when even, even in, in raising kids, explaining to, to, to children, sort of that whole motto of what I talked about 
um, with my book. It's like little hands can make a big difference. It's about little choices that you make in your businesses. It doesn't have to cost a lot of money. It's, right. it's little choices that you make can have a tremendous impact. So the thing that I always suggest to, especially to smaller businesses, is that keep score, like keep a scorecard. You will be surprised that after a, a number of those choices that you've made, how much you've actually had an impact. And that goes back to knowing your numbers, uh, right? It's, right? It's about knowing your numbers and having that be part of your story. You connect to so many other people that want to make a difference, that want to make a choice of working with a company or buying products from a company that are making those socially responsible decisions. The, the type of impact you're having is actually great for your business in the end, um, because you've you've seen a big mind shift or or mindset shift in even consumers wanting to associate themselves with companies that are doing this. It doesn't matter the size of your company. Yeah, um, it's it it really applies to small and large companies all around. That's such good advice. I mean, just pick one thing that's yours to do, right? Like, what can I uniquely do? And the idea of the um, some being greater than its parts of this collective action. I mean, I think that was a lot of, um, this is not a political thing, but just a lot of Obama's fundraising strategy. That was the idea, right? Like, can we get a million people to give $20 yeah. versus going after these 50 big donors to give us, mm -hmm. you know, millions? And then look what that did. It created, um, you know, communal action because people could give 20, right? But you feel like, well, what can why am I going to give a campaign $20? What can they possibly do with that? They need millions, but you can, yeah. right? And those things add up. And so I see that that's being- a, That's an excellent example. I totally agree. Yeah. It's a, um, so thank you for that. Thank you for inspiring everyone. So what are you reading or paying attention to right now that's informing how you think about the world? Oh, that's, um, that's, that's a good question. A lot of things related to coffee. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and- Probably one area of focus, which I'm fascinated with right now is, is shipping and logistics. And I think that a lot of people's uh, focus as they've, they went through COVID, obviously you saw um, shipping and logistics uh, become an incredibly vital, you know, industry that is not sexy, but um, but, but needed. And so I, I just think that that's one area that I probably historically have not really needed to pay attention to, but it's, it's an area right now where, um, I'm fascinated with the state of the shipping industry right now and, and logistics in general. Uh, so we'll see where that, that takes me, but that's, that's, uh, I do have, um, a special interest in that. Currently. I mean, even just the planet, I'm probably going to get these numbers wrong, but it was something like, like one ocean carrier throughout its lifetime was the equivalent of something like a million cars in terms of its impact on greenhouse gases. Yes. And I, I think I have that. I probably have the number wrong. Whatever it is, it is massive. The number is, is massive. No, you, I've, I've read, I've read something similar and I, I think you're on the right track. It is, it is something like that. It is just mind blowing. Yeah. So I think there's such a uh, planetary health benefit too, to just rethink 
how we are approaching you know, logistics and distribution. Exactly. Yes, exactly. it's inconvenient that we can't get the things we want and like what it's doing to the planet. Yeah, right. Um, so I know that you're not actively involved in these um, industries anymore, but finance industry, again, is just changing so much. I think it's still an industry that um, would like to do more in terms of, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, a lot of other things. What is your biggest wish for the finance industry? You can wave your magic wand in five years. What would you wish for them? Yeah, I and I, I feel like there is a movement towards this um, already, but it just moving the financial services industry is like, you know, moving the Titanic. I, it's mm-hmm. really not an easy thing to do because of all the regulation and um, uh, I'll say the siloed nature of it. I, I, if I wave my magic wand, I really wish I had one. Um, <laughs> I think, I think you will eventually see much more transparency. Transparency is needed for the end customer uh, more than more than anything when it comes to um, financial services. I also think that from a media standpoint, um, you will see more actionable media. I mentioned that a little bit earlier too, yeah. but I think it's the transparency on the financial services side um, and more actionable media on uh, on the media industry side. Yeah. So the last thing we love to do, we love to do a rapid fire. Um, we usually do about 10 questions. Are you up for it? Sure. Bring it on. Okay. We'll go quick. Your go-to coffee order. Oh, double espresso Americano black every single day um, and probably too many per day. But I love the elegance of a grace um, of, a, of a pour over when I have time. <laughs> when you have time. I often get the Americano because sometimes that's all you can get, decaf. They're like, well, we don't have decaf coffee, but we have decaf espresso. So uh, I'm there with there you. you. Where is your happy place? Uh, I don't sit still for very long, but when I do, um, I love to be in front of a fire uh, with my black coffee or a mm-hmm. bourbon on the rocks. Um, or just uh, on the flip side of that, um, out running. I think running is my happy place. Yeah. What is the last show that you binged and loved? <laughs> so this one makes me laugh because I don't watch TV. Um, I don't even follow series. I, I probably should. Um, but I do have something I share with my youngest daughter, uh, and that's a love and appreciation for Harry Potter. And we have been wa- binge watched that together. <laughs> yes. Um, we watched them all too. My sons, I think, were maybe a little too young. They were eight, but... Loved it. Yeah. Loved it. Loved it. Parts of it are kind yeah. of scary, yes. especially the last one. What is your best life hack? Wear all black. Never have to waste time figuring out what to wear or or what will match. Um, so it saves me a ton of time. You all can't see Christy because this is audio only, but she is wearing black. <laughs> Early bird or night owl? Early bird, 100%. If you could have dinner with anyone, living or past, who would it be? Uh, Steve Jobs, brilliant storyteller, innovative, intuitive design and creator, would love, would love to talk with him. And black turtleneck. And black turtleneck, yes. <laughs> App on your phone that you can't live without. <laughs> uh, 
just my phone in general, like access. Uh, so, so I'm not sure just one app, although probably my camera, because I have 120,000 pictures on my phone. Yep. <laughs> the last book you read that changed how you think. Um, most recently, uh, the World Atlas of Coffee. I have a much deeper appreciation for what goes into each and every cup of coffee we drink. Two billion cups of coffee are consumed every single day worldwide. I just wow. have a much um, deeper appreciation now of what it takes to just get one cup of coffee in your hands. A fun fact most people don't know about you. I call myself an introvert, but I'm an ambervert, actually. And your favorite hidden gem in Chicago or the Chicago area? Oh, um, I'm not sure it's actually truly hidden, uh, but Metric Coffee on the west side of Chicago. Um, and probably my favorite hidden gem in Oak Park is literally called Little Gem. Oh, that's great. Um, okay, so tell everyone where they should go to check out what you're doing. You three, is there a website? Where should they go check it out? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that opportunity. Um, our website is u3coffee.com. So the letter U, the number three, coffee.com. And of course, we're on Instagram, u3coffee. Uh, we're on Twitter, u3coffeex. Um, and certainly on LinkedIn, uh, u3coffee. And then, of course, I'm Christy Ross X. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn as well. And we got and do you have a location. A we haven't done that yet, but we will. TikTok. <laughs> um, and do you have a location yet that people can go to? So we uh, are opening our uh, cafe and roastery in the spring of 2024, located in Forest Park um, at 7430 Madison Street. Uh, but yeah, feel free to check it out. And if you follow us on our social media, we'll be giving updates as we are working through construction. Wonderful. Check it out, everyone. Christy, thank you so much. I admire you tremendously. You're a gift to Chicago. You continue to give back. You're beloved by all. So glad that you could be here with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Margaret. I appreciate the time and the platform and uh, just spending time with you. Um, so I will be sending you your decaf coffee. <laughs> okay. Thank you. And bonbons. I'm going to send you some bonbons too. <laughs> some we'll bonbons. We'll compare. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.